0: untold no regrets with the j-dog mr jeremy muller this episode is with the charismatic and always entertaining jeremy muller jeremy has forged a wonderful lifestyle in asia built on his three decade-long relationships developed through his engaging personality world-class eq and his bold and fearless approach to new ventures and spirit for adventure our conversations cover jeremy's original journey from holding down five jobs in surrey to his initial move out to hong kong tokyo and subsequently singapore and following a successful money-broking career in finance with Talits, his transformative move into the restaurant and wine industries with some tremendously experienced and talented key culinary and winemaking partners. Jeremy's award-winning winery in Margaret River is Bacavi, and he's a partner and investor in Travis Macero Restaurant Group, which comprises a collection of four restaurants in Singapore, Luke's, Blue Label Pizza & Wine, Nickster, and The Club Room. Enjoy Untold with Jeremy Muller. Jeremy, thank you for your time today, which is most appreciated. First question, I guess, is, um, could you tell us a little about your time in Asia and and, uh, some of the contributing factors between a young lad from Surrey ending up uh, in the Far
1: East? Uh, Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, I spent 30 years, actually, in in Asia, um, coming over, first of all, in the late 80s, uh, lucky enough to get to Hong Kong, uh, which was, I mean, yeah, it was a very different Hong Kong to you see what especially now, but uh, yeah, back then it was an amazing place, really great. And obviously from, well, from there I went to Japan and then to Singapore where I spent sort of uh, most of the time like about 27 years, I think it is now Singapore. But, you know, when you talk of like the financial high- highlights, I think more it's, it was the sort of luck of being in the right place at the right time, you know, to be in Asia in what's gotta be sort of the biggest period of change or in any of our lifetimes anyway. Um, I was just able to see so much and just really, you know, like for Singapore, I was there on the first, like the first one they opened up the foreign exchange markets in Singapore. Yes, it did exist beforehand, but it really, they sort of uh, offer of tax breaks, wanted people to move down. And we were the first uh, money brokers to come down. And I was just really there at the beginning and, you know, sort of rode the wave as it were. So yeah, just feel incredibly lucky to have met so many people over those years and worked with some great people and uh, yeah, had a a really good time, actually. So yeah, it was a great, great time to be there.
0: Jeremy, 27 years in Singapore is is a remarkable tenure. Are you able to tell us a little about some of the cityscape, cultural and uh, culinary changes you've seen over that period of time?
1: Yeah, no, so I arrived in Singapore in 1994, I think, you know, you can talk about that, but I mean the, the biggest change I think is just is the sheer number of people. I think when I when I arrived, I, I believe the population was like two point four million people, um, and I'm I, it's now pretty five point eight or something like that. So you know, it's it's just changed beyond the building, the sort of development you've seen in Singapore is incredible. Um, you know, also the the restaurant scene and what what we've seen you know food wise. I mean, you know, when, when I arrived, as far as like Western coffee shops, they didn't exist. Pretty much coffee you bought in a plastic bag of a straw you know re- foreign restaurants outside of hotels um really very very few in fact the other day i was actually lucky enough to be in bali and the the general manager of the hotel where i was staying was a, an old friend of mine uh, from singapore he used to be the major d in the raffles grill hands hands mayor and we were just talking about all the changes all the things that are different and trying to remember which restaurants there were in singapore actually outside of hotels back then, and we could only remember there was um uh, was it salu um and then there was um a, a, ta- a couple of italian restaurants and that was bad that really was about it there was just there was so little from like stand-up restaurants of their own you know like i used to have to go to well i say you had to but it was i would pretty much go to raffles every day for lunch, because it was the only, Sears Street Deli was the only sort of Western sandwich place on the island, which when you when you, when you think of that now, which is like such an incredible cosmopolitan city with so many amazing places to eat, you, you you find it hard to believe that not that long ago, it really was a very different place.
0: Jeremy, that's a super overview of uh, of the region. Are you able to share how you ended up in Asia? um your initial moves and some of the cities that you were you were based but w- it would be fascinating to hear how originally that the move came about and the opportunities that that presented themselves
1: yeah well um so i was like eight, i was 18 years old i left school at um 16. um not particularly successful uh, at my my school life um left with one o level and um was doing a mixture of jobs so i was working for a insurance company and in working i was working a double glazing salesman um i was working in a pub i was working in a, a dive shop like um in london dive and uh, gun shop in london and also in the territorial army so all, all those between the ages sort of 16 to 18 doing five jobs at the same time and uh, an opportunity came up for a, an apprenticeship in hong kong and it sort of you know, at the age of 18, accommodation, a flight out, and um, a ridiculously low salary. I mean, even even back then, I, I think it was £2,000 a year it worked out at um, for, for, the, for the salary. So it was basically you had no money, but what you did have, they paid for your drinks, you had a, a company credit card that you could use for going out, uh, and an apartment to stay in Hong Kong. So it was, it was just incredible. It was such a great experience, and I went out there for sort of nine months. Then went back to London, worked um, probably less than two years. No, it would have been less than two years in London. Uh, and I was at one point. i had been asked about um, you know what we thought we needed for our Tokyo operation, and they said, "Would you go for a uh, three-week business trip?" So I went over to Tokyo for three weeks, and basically came back, and they said, "Okay, we need you know now." you've spent some time in Asia before, you've been to Tokyo, we're not doing very well over there. Can you just write a report about what you think might be needed? And basically I described how they needed a young, single guy to go over there and entertain. And um, the only person on the desk who was young, single and free to go was uh, funny enough myself. And it basically yes, I sort of sorted the job out and that was it, went over to uh, to Tokyo and that would have been in 19, 1990, 1991. And that was it, never left, never left Asia after that.
0: Fantastic. So the report from Jeremy Muller Associates from a research (laughs) perspective led to the appointment of a Mr. Jeremy Muller heading up Tokyo.
1: Exactly. Basically described myself as the only person who could do it. Yeah, it's quite funny. And hopefully at a
0: salary that had bumped up a bit from uh, (laughs) £2,000.
1: A little bit bit more at that point, yeah.
0: Jeremy, the Asia banking circuit is fairly uh, established. Can you can you talk through some of your key markets where you would have to visit with any regularity and some of the trips you would look forward to and why?
1: Um well work-wise, I, I spent, you know, say even when I was when I was in then Singapore, I would spend a lot of time traveling to Hong Kong. We had customers in Hong Kong, customers in Tokyo, and then in Australia. So Sydney, Melbourne, we would go to see um, say Tokyo, Hong Kong for work and then. I guess weekends used to do a lot of weekend traveling as well because it was just so easy and I think Phuket or Bali were the two sort of main places you would go to to back then I guess it hasn't changed that much nowadays but um yeah they, that was where I used to do and it was a lot of flying so I've been traveling across Asia the whole time.
0: You mentioned some of the iconic restaurants in Singapore but when you were doing those travels what what were some of the uh iconic restaurants and hotels that the Financiers would try to frequent in the eighties, nineties, and and more recently.
1: Oh crikey! Um, well, I mean, Tokyo is just Tokyo is just an incredible place. I mean, hotel wise, we we they always used to put us as the the Anna Hotel just because of its sort of proximity. It was halfway between sort of the business district and Roppongi, which is probably where most people would head out in the evenings. So that was sort of where we would normally stay in Tokyo, but. You know, my favorite restaurant there was a place called Mon Cher Tonton. It's a it's sort of an underground teppanyaki place. And it is just to this day, it's amazing. That's, that's sort of what I would say there. Um, also, then if you're just going out, you do beers under the sort of the railway arches in the business and yunyaki tori. But there, you know, Tokyo, the, the whole culinary scene, you can't go wrong anywhere in Japan. I mean, the, the pride they take on their food, on, on anything, no matter what you have, it, it, will, it will be good. Um, Hong Kong. I think my many places, I mean, from sort of you know, Otto Mezzo, Michelin star restaurants, Captain's Bar in the Mandarin hotel, Mandarin, then you got the Mandarin Grill, um Nardaman in the Shangri-La used to like. That was always a good another Tepan place. And then if, if you wanted something more casual, you would go on a junk, head over to Lama and you go to the Lama Hilton. Not to be mistaken with your old company, of course. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, great. And then yeah, so I those that, that in Sydney. Uh, sorry, where else? Sydney Cafe Sydney, uh, Maciavelli were my two probably favourites there. Um, Melbourne, I mean, there's just so many great restaurants in Melbourne. So that's that's sort of a you know a tricky one. The highlight was headed for coffees in the lanes, but um, like, again, Melbourne's just one of those sort of places you can't really go wrong. Voodoo Mondo, I mean, Stoke House used to go to, but yeah, a lot of different places. And then yeah, Phuket. Um, we we used to always, I guess, head to Barnum Park, it's on the cliff over, over the sort of, uh, main part of town, um, and Bali again, lots of, lots of different places. But, uh, yeah, so the, the whole thing, we used to do a lot, a lot of travel just for, for eating and drinking, I guess, <laughs> it was good, good fun.
0: Jeremy, one of the monumental moments in your life clearly would have been meeting chef Travis, who's tremendously talented and, and world-class culinary professional. Could you tell us where you actually met the the circumstances around the meeting and how that friendship or acquaintance actually led into your second career, if you like?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the, the, that was obviously for nine well, nine years ago, I made the move. Uh, it, for me, it's been one of the sort of the biggest Things is that ability to leave foreign exchange markets and to get into that, um, the, the vineyards I had earlier, but we, we, I guess we'll come to that a little bit later. But the with, with Travis, I mean, that's been for me one of the sort of yeah, major part of my life now is like meeting him, which was, I think, I was gonna say sort of 17, 18 years ago, I think when he first arrived, he came over uh, from the States to open up a place called The Wine Garage um, back then. So for me, I've always been involved, always been interested and passionate about wine um so then i met somebody else it was a young guy over here setting up what was a, essentially a wine bar but a really good food really great wine bar and i pretty much went there every day like you know whether it was walking past on the way out of work for a glass or two of wine you know, on, by myself and then chatting with travis or whether i was there for you know longer um uh, when you know with customers which i would then again be there for longer drinking more wines and things like that and I, I guess we just, we became like uh, close friends. We used to, he used to help me with some of the windings initially was so sort of when I was getting for going, going and, um, yeah, we just got close. And then when a little while later, he, he'd moved to another restaurant, uh, set that up, was doing very well, but there was a, a bit of an issue. He wanted to go out by himself and the two of us were talking and he said, look, you know, do you want to do something? And so that was it. That's the pair of us got together and, um, and yeah, started that. And then he, he went out, found what was now, you know, Luke. So it was a start of a great partnership and it's been it's been really good over the years.
0: Jeremy, how did you move from meeting Travis and knowing his talents, but but you being more a client and a customer to you then going, all right, rather than being a a, a banker, a money broker and being heavily involved in the industry, I want to concentrate all my time solely on Picavi. And launching or running Luke's and adding further restaurants further down the line because that's a a dramatic
1: lifestyle change. To, to, you're right. It was at that point generally people didn't wouldn't normally have just left. But I, I think for myself, it was there were two things um, happening. One, the restaurants were becoming more and more successful, um, so that sort of gave me I guess some confidence. But then what happened? I had um, it was like a medical issue I guess it was like a it was a stress they got they a stress induced cardiovascular spasm so at first they thought I had a heart attack it, it turns out it wasn't anything so serious but they put you on some medication and it's just I just felt pretty crap and so I had gone to um went to the doctor and I said look you know what can I do and he goes the only thing you do is get rid of stress so literally I, I went back and resigned that day and I was just yeah you know, I was thinking about it there's no you only you only you only live once and life too short so there's no point being there so literally I did that but then I had to work my notice which was one year and in the, in the end it ended up being like 13 months I ended up doing notice period but it was actually good the company was amazing they were so good about it and sort of you know at first my, my boss was like you know we can't tell anyone for I don't know he, and he's like well he goes let me think about how long and he comes back the next day he goes right I've thought about it we're going to tell people after eight months I'm what do you mean? He goes, well, eight months, you're gonna just gradually move lines around, get rid of some of the customers to other people on the desk. He said, but if, if we tell people before, everyone on the desk is gonna try and take your customers. And if we tell people later, they're gonna think we've tinged you. So I'm like, okay, eight months. <laughs> that was it, that's how it came about. So yeah, that was, it was quite an easy decision to make in the end.
0: Well, from a lifestyle perspective, it obviously makes a lot of sense and and, and it would be right to describe clients there. So. A large part of your role really was maintaining, developing and looking after key clients and lots of entertainment, I would guess.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, that's that's where, you know, everyone like at work used to joke about me being the F and B director, because a lot of a lot of it was going out and sort of, you know, entertaining people and going to bars and restaurants, which obviously now, you know, has, has been so beneficial. Just the fact that I had all these relationships and know so many people in that industry in in Singapore or well, and across Asia really as a result. So and yeah, from a lifestyle
0: sort of... perspective, you're a keen runner. obviously you travel extensively but but from a, a, a health perspective you, you you've now uh, your your cardiovascular challenges are all okay and and behind you.
1: yeah yeah, yeah no yeah no problems at all no problems at all.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Jerry. Gemmill Lane, if, if you visit it in 2022, is obviously a hive of activity and it's become a, a real focal point of S- Singapore. But if you go back a decade, when you'd have come, a- come across it as a location, it was probably a bit of a bold decision and slightly unexpected sight. Are you able to talk a little bit about how that location was, was found and then some of the changes you've seen over the years to that part of Singapore?
1: yeah we I mean uh, definitely we were very I, I, I said, no, lucky is the wrong word, but we you yeah know, we went out, we we were looking for it. Travis has like spent I don't know days wandering around different streets, different areas, different parts of Singapore, trying to find the the place to start off what he you know was then going to become looks, and he wanted something which was a little bit sort of run down, but yeah you know, edgy, I guess is probably the way of it, but again, close enough to the sort of the business district and he came across this road that had been effectively derelict for, for years uh, and that was it and then we started we were the first restaurant people thought I mean, we thought we we're mad initially but um, it really then picked up and as you can see now it is it is one of the sort of the main little restaurant like hubs in in singapore it's great so we, we were you know very fortunate that he you know, persevered and went through all that and he found this amazing space and that's sort of how yeah how Luke started to be there and that's you know, been brilliant
0: and what year did you actually open your doors
1: Uh, 11 years ago. 11 years ago. Uh, Yeah, 11 11 years ago.
0: And then, uh, in terms of the original restaurant, are you able to talk through, if you you go through 11 years and opening, maybe not a, a, a great location for footfall and passing trade, but obviously the reputation of Loops very quickly became extremely positive and, and it became a, a landmark restaurant in Singapore you were able to talk through some of the earlier accolades or milestones that really helped you propel from new restaurant to go into one of the toughest places to get a reservation midweek and, and on weekends
1: yeah I, I think I mean again this comes down to very much to Travis he's like, incredibly passionate about all this he comes from uh, Boston there the the whole seafood thing was very much part of his his culture there and he really felt that this didn't sort of exist in singapore wanted to bring it to singapore so he he went out sourced all the stuff from, like from like distributors that he actually worked with over there where he comes from knows these people for years and brought this in so he the whole i think that passion then transmitted to other people to our customers and right from day one we were getting incredible reviews from you know from the straits times or other things so we've been very lucky i don't know if there's like one accolade that you could say one thing propelled it forward but it was it was multiple you know like one of the good examples i think is if you go back right to what travis started at the very beginning which was when we were at wine garage was the burgers and it was that this involved the travis burger and you know forbes magazine that did a a write-up on the best burger in singapore and it was all about travis's burger and literally this is one thing that's gone from you know wine garage to spruce to Luke's, and that's quite you know amazing when you think of it like that how that sort of that one thing, and then the, the different write-ups, different accolades for that. You know, we did very well. And then, you know, we've, when we started the pizza place, we did, doing, you know, we were, like, straight Times did a write-up and a whole page on best pizza in Singapore. Uh, again, very, you know, very fortunate. And it's just multiple accolades over the years. Um, but, you know, it, I think, to me, the most important thing is it would be word of mouth for the customers. You know, consistently do good food, good place, and you look after the guests, and that's it
0: excellent the, the burger is obviously uh in- incredible and it, it's always featured in the the top list of um singapore burgers and, and and i would frequently have it over over the steak and i think one of the best dinners i'd had w- at luke's was when travis had introduced two different burgers so there was one on the lunchtime menu which i believe was the blue label burger and then there was a travis yeah. burger in the evening which yes. uh, there were slight Slight differences between the two, but not major. But what what the 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 waiter kindly offered to do was give me a half of the blue label burger and half of a travis burger. So you can actually. I need uh, a word. He's, yeah, I best,
1: need a word. He's never done that for me. No, best,
0: no I think it caused issues in the kitchen because because uh, I asked. The <laughs> and he said no. Just order one. Make your mind up. You can't have. Can't have half <laughs> two people and half Travis, but um, no, yeah, exactly, but not, exactly. But yeah, the burger is 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 incredible, and and to order it above steak is is something I I only rarely do, and that that obviously talks to the quality of Travis's burger. Unfortunately, it's not there any longer because of the closing down of Robinson's, which was Singapore's famous department store. You know, like a Harrods in London or a Selfridges. Are you able to talk just a little as to how you managed to get a great restaurant in robinson's and some of the great times when you were on site there
1: yeah for sure no um we were actually approached by them um as they were starting over there to be sort of their you know flagship restaurant there so we were there from pretty much day one when they opened right up until when they closed um yeah it was it was a fantastic restaurant it was um Reminded me of New York, and then looking down Orchard Road and everything. It's just—it's uh, an incredible, incredible feeling, incredible place, and very sad that it closed you now with the closure of Robinson's. It was—it uh, was pretty iconic, actually, that place, and uh, some many good lunches and dinners there,
0: and a great private room where you obviously oh, celebrate, yeah. celebrate lots of uh, milestone birthdays, but also that you you managed to combine nicely with some of your wine events.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, we did lots, lots of wine events, lots of things there, and also the bar. You know, don't forget it had that different sort of bar feeling that I was able to do uh wine events a lot of sort of like just talk, whether it be about my own wines or what I did different wines we often did sort of you know like pairings but where it'd be blind sort of you know old world new world and things like that and it would they were made just brilliant evenings obviously with that backdrop down orchard road so yeah very some really good times there it was it was just such a say such a great place and just really sad actually that it, it closed
0: yeah well, in terms of um, Luke's expansion, and and I know there's there's always opportunities because it's such a great concept. Are there any that you're allowed to put in the public domain as to put potential future locations for Luke's?
1: Yeah, I mean, right now we're we're looking in Japan, actually in uh, Naseko. so we're 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 there. We're, we're quite far down with talks there, so that's going to be hopefully opening. Um, we have been talking to some other places. You know, we've looked in, uh, we looked in Hong Kong. Um, and London, but because of like COVID, they both, both had to be shelved um, and currently we are, we are looking at a possibility of somewhere else in Southeast Asia. So, you know, for us, it's not, it's not so much just about going out and just trying to expand. It's more about if the right opportunity comes along, the right place comes in, you know, it's gotta be the right feeling and everything. You know, we've really grown organically like that. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's good for our staff as well. But then new places come along because um, everything we try to do is internally.
0: Jeremy, my my sincere apologies. We've approached Luke's with great velocity, and and I'm conscious that we potentially haven't given the context or concept. Are you able just to describe Luke's for our listeners who may not be from Singapore or had the pleasure of visiting?
1: Yeah, sure. No, uh, Luke's, as I mentioned earlier about Travis um, coming from Boston and the whole how for him, all the, the East Coast United States, uh, States, the seafood from there is just amazing. And so he was really like, we've got to bring these oysters in. And that was you know one of the sort of driving factors of how Luke's came about. And then at the time it was a bit like with the pizzas, I guess, back then Singapore, there wasn't exactly loads of steak restaurants. And so it was just the whole combination of sort of, you know like a, a one of the original old chop bars along with the seafood restaurant and that's how the combination came about and that's how the sort of the birth of of looks and it's just it, it's proved to be an incredible success because you know the combination of people enjoying seafood and meats and everything it's just it's just worked over time
0: and in terms of the oysters it, it, they're flown over but there's always a great var- variety so how yeah. many tip how many typically would, would you try to have on the menu when people are going to have the dozen or couple of dozen oysters
1: to start with we normally try to have about four different oysters at any point, but we've just you know for us it's not even like you're pre-ordering. it's whatever you know our contacts in Boston will literally collect the oysters, pack them up, fly them over. And so these are like pretty much you know two days from seabed type stuff I and mean, it's it's crazy how fresh they are.
0: That's great. Thank you, Jeremy. Um prior to Covid, yeah. You and Travis opened successfully a new pizza concept just off Club Street, but then very shortly after we were able to open a a second outpost in the Mandarin Orchard, what's now the new Hilton in a marquee mall off Orchard Road. Are you able to to share some of the thinking and and the process behind um, opening, obviously, a pizza specialty restaurant, but high-end, and then some of the potential future opportunities for Blue Label?
1: yeah for sure um i mean i I think it it started the back if you go back sort of quite a few years ago there wasn't really there wasn't really much in the way of great world-class pizza in singapore i think that has changed and that has changed in the last like few years there's more and more great pizza places here now but back then there wasn't really i'd say very many so travis and i were like with because he always thought we should we should open um you know a a really high-end pizza place so we we started looking and then we were trying to find out how to sort of bring that in with wine so we were because at one point we think about a wine bar and we thought well combine it which is why you know there's a neon sign pizza and wine it's very much that's the way it works everything's on sort of the coravan system so nearly all of our wines by the glass or however you want it it's um and it's, it's really worked you know over over the years actually since it's been going but um I, as I think we we then we started looking trying to get ideas trying to get concepts we i can remember going with travis we were flying one of the trips we went around london with the sole purpose of just trying to see as many pizza places and i think we did end up doing back-to-back like eight pizza joints a day for three days because i would move <laughs> at the end of it but um <laughs> it was uh fun times but yeah we know let say it's been been really good actually and the the pizzas obviously then with with covid we've been very lucky because it's it's obviously a type of food that people then could have got delivery, and so that really helped us at that point. You know, what was obviously a difficult time, but uh, no, overall it's been great success and um, really good. As far, as far as future expansion, yeah, it's it's not something I say we're, we're not out there looking, but we are. You know, when when opportunities arise, we do look at them individually and sort of see what might work work with us and what feels like a good fit.
0: Thank you, Jeremy. And I guess it also talks to the the world-class abilities of Chef Travis, and to, to be able not just to, to decide on a, a particular food market or category, but like you talked about research trips, but he obviously had views on the quality of the dough, the toppings, the flavorings, and, and everything else. So you are able just to talk about how he really invigorated the pizzas and made sure they were upscale, and also, Talk a little about the J Dog and the Travis Supreme, which you obviously eponymously named the two here
1: finest (laughs) pizza. No, I think I mean that that side of things is very much, you know, Travis, Travis's passion. As you say, he is he's a world-class chef and he spent so much time dedicated just right going after everything, but also with, with the team of chefs. You know, we've got some really great people. And it's just, you yeah, know, as you say, it's just putting really good ingredients um, and then looking for ideas. I mean, and then with, with regards, to those two, I think, you know, Travis, had his idea obviously has something to do with like the burger, the Travis Supreme. For myself, I think uh, Travis is the only time I've ever been allowed anything to do with any part of the, the food side in the business. And that was when sort of coming up with this sort of, you know, the meat lovers pizza, as it were, which is then, as they became known the J-Dog. Probably the most photographed pizza in Singapore.
0: And you, you, can confirm you you didn't used to take to offence when I used to send the, the the far more popular Travis order from my house where the j dog would absolutely in one in five.
1: <laughs> no, 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 exactly, and it was the same, same at the same home actually. My eldest son, his 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 favourite pizza is the Travis Supreme. The so yeah, there you go.
0: Excellent. Not everybody. <laughs> and you mentioned some of the um challenges of covid but but obviously that that uh, having blue label helped and it as it as it helped many pubs restaurants in in singapore i think every restaurant by the end of covid in uh, robertson quay had had a pizza oven installed at some stage but um could you also talk to some of the challenges like group size music and 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 if you think that singapore is potentially going to now be through it from a nightlife perspective well yeah
1: fingers crossed you have really gotta hope so i mean yeah it was it was very very difficult times the i think it was especially difficult when it went down to the two people in no music because you know going to a restaurant isn't just about eating the food it's about the atmosphere it's about you know being with people being with friends whether you're celebrating something or you just you know just going out but it's i i think is this that's a really important part of it um, otherwise you would just get takeaway, you know? So, and that, when, when that stopped, that was probably the most difficult time, you know, for us overall, we, we sort of, you know, we made it through. We, we lost one, one of our, you know, flagship restaurants, which obviously as said earlier is very sad, but by the same token, over the course of COVID, we actually opened up two new restaurants. Um, we opened up the club room right at the end, which is sort of a, like a sort of offshoot of um, Luke's. And then we opened up um, Nixta, which is our, our Mexican restaurant. So we, yeah, in, in that sense, we ended up with more over COVID. But um, it's no, it wasn't wasn't an easy time, and it was obviously it was it was worrying in the sense you didn't know what was going to happen. It wasn't like you, you know, you're told it's going to be difficult for two years because you had no idea whether it's going to keep going. You know, as you asked a moment ago, is it going to? You know, could it happen again? Y- yes, it could, but you just got to keep your fingers crossed, and you know, you can't. You couldn't work a business plan worrying about that. You have to take steps. You have to still try to grow. Um, otherwise, you know, because you, you can't you can't plan for things you don't know.
0: Well, from the outside, clearly I've, for most of COVID, I've been out, out of Singapore, but you, you see lots of ingenuity and positivity. When the announcement about the music came, it seemed symbolically to break a lot of people, that, that it just really hit their motivations. You saw... Lots of chefs, restaurateurs, and everything else exasperated, just thinking, well, what difference does music have? But it, like you said, in terms of every restaurant has a music policy and it adds so much to the the ambience. It, it seemed to just really be a, a tough decision at the time.
1: Yeah, I, I really, really think that's the case. It is. It is it's eating out is about the, you know being in that place, being with friends, being with people, you know, not many people eat by themselves in a restaurant, you know, some people do, but not many. Uh, and so to do that, if it comes down just to two people with no atmosphere and you also don't forget, you weren't allowed to talk to other people. You, everything was very different and people, people were worried. So, you know, but overall I think it's been handled well in, in Singapore and it's sort of now coming out the other side, um, you know, things are good for the business. The only problem we have now is getting staff, but I think that's across, across the board. Um,
0: yeah. In addition to your partnering with with Travis on the restaurant side, another great success and, and parallel uh, to the to the industry sector was was your your move into wine, and not not just a move into wine, but a move to Margaret River, which has a, a relatively uh, new wine history, no, doesn't go back so far, but but arguably some of the best grapes globally. Um, are you able just to talk about some of your early visits to Margaret River and, and how a lot of people's potential holiday pipe dream, but but you actually made it a realization?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I mean, um, Margaret River to me is always been a special place. Um, I started going there probably, I reckon, 25 years ago, and it was, there was very little there, very, very few restaurants, very few places to stay, it's obviously evolved a lot over the years. but. It's funny, I'd actually knew of uh, Margaret River even earlier than that. Like w- like when I was in um, Tokyo, actually, in the sort of the early 90s, um, a lot of the sort of the Margaret River winemakers would come over to Japan and would just be showing all the wines. So I, I sort of, you know, my father was pretty much every white wine in the house would have been a Burgundy and every red wine would have been a Bordeaux. So for me, Sort of Margaret River wines really sort of sung to me. You got the whole, you know, Margaret River probably along with Napa Valley is like one of the only places in the world that you can make a world-class um, Chardonnay and a world-class Cabernet in the same vineyard. Um, and so f- for that reason, it just sort of made sense to me when I, I found the opportunity. And I found um, Bacavi was up, it wasn't called Bacavi back then. But um, when the vineyard was up for sale, I bought it. So I actually bought it 17 years ago. Um, and it sort of gave me initially more of a hobby, um, but then over time, and since I've sort of, you know, left foreign exchange, I've actually got involved now with the wine making. So there's a, a very great friend of mine who's the winemaker at Woodlands and he's been sort of helping me out. And he was for years was saying, come on, Jeremy, you've got to make wine. And he's been now teaching me, which uh, then again, to have somebody is, you know, who I consider probably be the best red wine maker in Australia, helping me and teaching me for all these years has been absolutely fantastic.
0: You've had a lot of success in, in the last uh, 17 years with awards and accolades, uh, also being stocked in, in some of the world's best restaurants, member members, clubs, and retailers. That's obviously a combination of great grapes and winemakers, but also a consequence of knocking on many doors. Are you able to take through, if you were to go back 17 years, can you talk about some of your big wins and how they came about?
1: Yeah, I think, um the highest profile is we make we make wine for Harrods, which has obviously been amazing. You know, up until only about a year ago, the only shop in the world that stocked all of our wines was, was Harrods. And that was obviously a deliberate thing. Um sort of COVID has changed the way we've been sort of um placing ourselves and I mean just because at a necessity where you know we were really just in sort of restaurants and hotels, but over two years when most of these places were shut, um we had to change that. Um, so now we have sort of got a broader, uh, section of customers, but, um, yeah, so, so thought, gosh, what do we, I mean, we, there there again, has been so many. I mean, I, th- I think, um, we've in like Jeremy Oliver's wine, like in 2015, we were the finalists for wine of the year. That was quite amazing with the, making the number one cabinet in the country back then, um, we've just won, um, in the IWSC. So the, um, Hong Kong, uh, wine competition, which is one of the sort of the truly global wine competitions where she just won the trophy for best Cabernet in the world and uh, best red wine in Australia So obviously extremely extremely chuffed about those those had <laughs> never had those before um you know our, our Merlot we've got pretty much every wine writer in the country talks about well and overseas talks about how this is the greatest merlot out of Australia so we're you know yeah things are going well we've we've been consistently trying at the sort of the highest level and uh, no it's it's good it's 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 great to see all the sort of hard work come together
0: Jeremy we'll come on to your love of wine but Clearly, there's a, a close relationship between the restaurant group and Pekavi. Um, would, it, would it be fair to say that Picavi has helped the restaurant group, uh, as have your activities around winemaker dinners and other events that you've brought to your locations in Singapore?
1: Oh, you know what? I'd actually say it's more the other way around. I, th- I think the restaurants You know, part especially when you're a new like wine brand, it's it's difficult to get yourselves out initially. You know, obviously, in in the UK, the Harrods thing has helped a lot of people then know you from that. But in in Asia, it's like, you know, you're starting out, you're trying to sort of push it. I I think part of where we've been fortunate is you mentioned a little bit earlier actually, Margaret River, it's only really been a wine region for 53 years, probably of that only about 40 years, like full commercial. So you're not competing with our vineyards, what, 26 years old now. So we're not. You know we're not like the youngest by any stretch and you're competing against many different people but you're still you still run into these problems when you start off trying to get people to taste the wine. Um, one of the obvious things having a restaurant group and fortunate to be with a great group like we have is all the wines are on the list. So a lot of people, we got a huge amount of exposure. I think in our database is like 40,000 people. So the number of people that come through all those restaurants and then see and try our wines actually has really helped. And I think that's actually probably been, it's probably more how Luke's has helped Bacavi, as I would say, rather than the other way around.
0: And then are you able to talk a little about the sales process? Because like you used to travel around Asia and, and uh, with, with regards to the finance side similarly from a business development side for Bukavi, you you've, you've traveled frequently around you, how how does that process work and and uh, you know what were some of the tougher markets to get export uh, deals set up in
1: yeah and i i think Stephanie, definitely um, my like traveling and also the length of time that i've been in asia has really helped you know so like we're very big in the in the career market um, we're big in sort of now malaysia um, Hong Kong, we've been there for years, um, where Thailand is now we're very successful, but it is, it's all the, all of them, none of them have been easy. All of them take time, but we're lucky when you work with good distributors in these countries, you actually then able to really push it. And it's been, that's been very, very fortunate actually going forward. So I think a lot of that has then really been down to my contacts or stuff, having been in Asia for a long time. Um, and as again, the UK side is very, we've got a fantastic distributor there. Uh, and we were introduced to these uh, by Harrods.
0: And then in terms of Margaret River, are you, again, are you able just to take, take a couple of minutes to introduce the region if someone potentially has not not been there?
1: Yeah, of course. No, so Margaret River is, I mean, it's I think the, sort of the best thing I like about it is, uh, or we were talking about it, is probably the most isolated wine region in the world. So if you, think, if you think of Perth as the most isolated city in the world, it's 2000 miles pretty much to the next city. Uh, I think Jakarta is the closest one. Um, we're three hours outside the most isolated city in the world. So, you know, we've got, it comes with its own challenges like labor and things like that. Um, but it is, yeah, it's just this most beautiful place. It's, it's, there's no um, like heavy industry within thousands of miles. So there's no pollution. The light, everything is like, it's just an incredible place when you get there. But uh, yeah, so we're three hours south of Perth. Um, the Margaret River region is only about 53 years old as a, as a wine region. Um, but it's, it's some of the other stats you always you hear people throwing about it. So 24%, uh, sorry, 2% of Australian wine, but 24% of premium wine from Australia comes from Margaret River. And it, it's now becoming you know, highly regarded as sort of the, the foremost wine region in Australia. Uh, and, you know, we make some of the, well, as, as I said, you know, that trophy for the world's best Cabernet, Yeah, you know, it's, it's overall, the region, yeah. incredible Cabernets, incredible Chardonnays.
0: In relation to Picavi, how did you move from having an interest in terms of drinking wine to actually investing in a uh, a vineyard and significant property in Margaret River. What were some of the trips that you took and what were your initial thoughts of the Margaret River region?
1: Yeah, I mean, like I, I'd, I'd gone down with my wife, we, we'd gone down to Margaret River a couple of times, just loved it. I mean, it's just such an incredible part of the world. You know, it's it's there's not many places in the world where you go, you just go to a beach and you see whales go past. You know it, it truly is one of the world's great places. And so I've gone there, just fell in love with the place. And that sort of really helped, you know, with with that side of it. That that sort of I, I guess made it for me on that. Um, but then you know, for, for Pikavi, I I guess it was I'd already been looking. I'd been looking for a while, trying to think of something to do after money broking. So, you know, I, I had it now. 17 years ago i bought it but i i'd I owned bakabi for 10 years while still at Talents. so i i think what it was was it was for me it was i was looking for farming initially i wanted to do something tangible i wanted to get out of you know foreign exchange where yes you make a lot of money but at the end of the day it's just that was it you just it was a a, a dollar figure whereas there wasn't that much i guess job satisfaction other than that i guess uh, and so I was looking to do something that's say like something tangible and I always thought well farming is what I wanted to do, so I started looking at different things, I looked at the UK, uh, different types of farming, never really found out what, and then I thought well, you know, I drink a lot of wine, wine, wine's the answer, and so then from there came, you know, I looked around New Zealand, I looked at Italy, um, you know, New Zealand was too far away, Italy didn't understand the legal system, um, then I mean France was too expensive, America was too expensive, um, so it was, it was very much going through different places. And then, you know, Margaret River was, like the, as well, the closest um, wine growing region to Singapore, which is where I was based at the time. And, you know, as well, for me, the whole, I might have mentioned before but about the, when I was in Tokyo, the um, meeting, the early, I guess, pioneers of Margaret River and getting an understanding of Margaret River wine. And then for me, I was really drawn to it because of what, you know the wines they produced. So That was it. So it became sort of fairly easy for that, and then that was it. Or found a place, um, and was was lucky in in the place we chose.
0: Excellent. And uh, in terms of the wineries in Margaret River, was Bacavi the only only vineyard that you you considered and and purchased no. then, or had there been a process where no. you had a a wider criteria yeah. and you had to go and see a number and narrow it down?
1: no there had there had been we, we looked at quite a few actually in fairness probably about six or seven in the at the time but um we were very lucky there's um a friend of mine who's been involved with the company and helped me out with things for years he was the ex-partner of my um sister-in-law he has been he was brilliant his best friend from school was one of the sort of very successful um like viticulturist over east and he helped me and his firm had turned out have been buying at the time different vineyards in my river so they had all these soil maps of the place they had an understanding and when I actually went to them with a couple of them and Bacar- what now is Bacavi, that particular vineyard they're like oh yeah we've actually looked at this vineyard ourselves and this place is amazing they're like the only reason we're not buying it is because about 30% of it is is bush and from a pure financial basis it didn't make so much sense at the time but you know if you're going there with you want it to be your family home as well as the sort of the business it actually does make a lot of sense because it's quite a it's such a stunning property
0: uh grape varieties and and wine types the movie that came out i don't know if you've seen it but the movie that came out sideways that is quite culturally one of the the bigger w- movies that reference wine a, fr- yeah. a very negative phrase came out that sort of clouded the Merlot market after. Do you know why Merlot was sort of singled out by snobs at some point? And, and you know, can you give a bit of a counter-argument and extol and it, it the virtues of Merlot?
1: I, I, yeah, I, I think part of it is that a lot of, like, cheap Merlot can be made and it is a lighter, easier drinking red wine. And I think that there's a lot of people made that style of Merlot, which gave it a bad reputation. But it's a bit like you know, Chardonnay. A lot of people, there was this whole thing about anything but Chardonnay. And a lot of people, so many people you meet, I don't drink Chardonnay. And yet, but well, do you like you know Chablis? Oh, I love Chablis. Do you like champagne? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Champagne. It's like, you know, and no, like, oh, what about Pliny Montrechet? Yeah, I love that. It's like, well, they're all Chardonnay. You know, this is the, and you've got the same thing with Merlot. A lot of people just didn't drink up. But then if you if you look at it, you know up until the sort of latest like Burgundy going crazy, the, the two most expensive wines in the world were 100% Merlot. You know, you had lepan Pan and Petrus. You know, so a lot of like the, the greatest wines out of France have historically been Merlot or Merlot, you know, central central wines really. Um, if you look in Italy, the most expensive wine out of Italy is, uh, is, is also 100% Merlot. And there's so many of the world's great wines are Merlot. And I was like, well, why doesn't, I don't think anybody does a serious Merlot in Australia. So one of the things I looked at was, well, why is that? And the lollipop was about the clones. So then I worked with some people I knew in France, helped out with a local company. I was able to find out which clones some of the sort of the the greatest states in in France are using, and then work with them to actually get those clones into Australia. And um, we have like the first commercial plantings of these clones which we have at the estate. And that's that's been one of the, the things that really helped us is getting these sort of the Merlot clients. And we then also got some Cabernet clients and stuff like that. So it's been yes, yeah, it's, it's been quite exciting and good fun, actually. And the wines, obviously, you know, we're very lucky now. We've got some incredible reviews from pretty much every wine writer there is in Australia saying these are the best Merlots now in the country. Jeremy,
0: in the backdrop of Margaret River, are you able to describe where Picavi is geographically um, maybe in relation to some other more more established or larger scale Margaret River vineyards that uh, people maybe are aware of, such as Xanadu and, and some of the others?
1: Yeah, Xanadu, Zan- you've got right at the very south, you have Xanadu uh, and uh, Lewin. I would say the two known ones are they're sort of very famous for their, their white wines down there because it's always, there's, a, there's about a four degree temperature variation between the north and south of Margaret River. So the, the way Margaret River sort of juts out of Australia, surrounded by ocean on three sides. You've got the Southern Ocean, obviously very cold in the bottom. You've got the Indian Ocean to the uh, the west, and then you have Geographic Bay in the north. Uh, and it's, it's sort of all, you know, we're towards the northern end of the wine region on, on the ridge, all the good, I'd say all the good wineries are on this same ridge. And we a large part of the sort of what makes Margaret River, I think, so special is all pretty much all the soil, a well, large part of the soil. They've got this gravel, loamy soil right through the ridge. But it's again this, it's like a wind tunnel that sort of, you know, during the day it brings cooler air off the Indian Ocean um, up towards Geograph Bay. And then at night it brings the sort of the warmer air. Um, and it's sort of back over the same vines going towards the ocean. And this sort of moderates the temperature and is what makes it so special.
0: Excellent. And from a development perspective, Busselton seems to be adding some more routes domestically. I think you can now fly from Sydney and Melbourne. Are there any other plans afoot for that airport? Because it seems to have, it, it's always a balancing act for tourism, but obviously there, it's such a beautiful region and there are so many attractions for families. Longer term, it, it seems to have you know, limitless growth possibilities around protecting some of the some of the locations being overrun
1: yeah absolutely no it is i mean it is such an incredible place you know it's i i think it's tripadvisor one of the one of the big companies last year they had it as like the most up-and-come tourist destination in the world um and you're right the airport is really going to change a lot you know the airport is um is, is massive news we've got now the first direct flights coming in and it's from melbourne um it was obviously delayed by two years because of COVID. Um they're talking Sydney's going to be opening up sometime soon. Um my understanding is um there's a um they're, they're in talks with Singapore Airlines. That's what we that's the rumors you're hearing at the moment, whether, you know, how quickly or whatever that goes ahead. But I know the plans for the airport was uh flight international between Singapore, they they said would be first, then Hong Kong, and third one supposed to be Bali, funnily enough. Probably because of the number of uh, FIFO workers who go between sort of Western Australia and Bali. So that that was the plan, and I think that when that changes, it's going to really open it up. Um, it, but there's a lot of exciting stuff happening down there. It's really it's great to be you know part of it and be there while it's all, all happening.
0: Well, it's it's interesting. Margaret River is a destination. Obviously, its ra- its prominence has raised massively over the last number of years. But I, I first heard of it in Singapore, and it, it seems to have a big awareness in Singapore. I guess because of proximity and word of mouth and and everything else but when i speak to my friend who's who's at margaret river holiday cottages as soon as the international borders opened up the number of travelers and visitors they get from singapore is incredibly high
1: no no it's gone crazy it's it, honestly there's so many people there so many people come from singapore because it offers such a you know such a difference the, the you, you know from like big city to just the, the the countryside of Margaret River, and there's no pollution whatsoever. You know, you can you're walking down the beach, you literally you'll see whales for like months of the year. You see dolphins every day. I mean, it's just it's incredible. It it is so, you know, going back to nature. It's such a beautiful place. It really is.
0: So, Jeremy, in, in terms of uh, wine awards and, and accolades as they grow, it, do you have any sort of shorter or longer term aims or goals that you'd like to achieve for Picavi?
1: Yeah, I, I, we've just opened up um, like a, a temporary cellar door, which is you know, exciting and it's great. But the, the plan is we're going to build like a proper cellar door and a, a winery. Um, and then we're not doing a big winery, but what we want to do the way we sort of, you know, we, we have three different, levels of wines but the the sort of the estate wines we want to make them all well we do make them all on site already but we want to increase that one and make some more of that so that one we need now uh, a proper winery so we're sort of yeah we've got more building plans and things it's yeah, quite exciting down there right now
0: excellent so tourists would then be able to just uh, uh, come up your drive and, and sample the wines on site
1: yeah absolutely absolutely and we're very lucky out oh, the view where we are used to be all the old wa tourism board um like photographs were actually taken from Bacardi so the views are like sort of some of the best in the region so we are yeah very lucky with that
0: and you're next door also to another winery that's fairly popular for events so that i'd that i'd yeah, have Aravina. Arav- okay, Aravina. so, that, so anyone Sorry, trying to nice, find a so location stupid. right next door to Aravina
1: yeah so it's quite funny so the number of people as well they said oh yeah i know i know that part of town i've flown in by a helicopter so it's like then i'm like okay we'll just show you the last minute of your flight and every single one, of them, they fly over my house. So I'm like, yeah, that's where I live. <laughs> yeah.
0: and, and can you tell a little secret about that lake that is between Aravina and Picavi? Little
1: secret about it? No, well, apart from the Marin, yeah. We get plenty of Marin in there. But, uh, but no, it's- um,
0: There's lots of signs said, beware of the crocodiles. You, you told me there weren't actually crocodiles, it's just to keep no, the people make-
1: away. No, Just keep, keep, keep the kids away. <laughs>
0: if anyone goes swimming in there and there are crocodiles, I need to put out a disclaimer.
1: Because uh, Yeah, exactly. Get, get me in trouble.
0: Now, wine is obviously a very complex uh, subject, and, and the more you dig in, sometimes the more you realise you don't know about it. You obviously do. Uh, are you able to just answer a few quick-fire questions on wine that, that might help guide some people yeah, that sure. are sophisticated? <laughs> so if I'm in a restaurant or I'm a restaurant owner, and I want to have a great wine list, but I don't have unlimited budget. What, what's the best way that I would be able to offer a great wine list or having a solid seller that might meet, meet customer needs and price points?
1: I think the first thing for me is you, wine can be as complicated as you want it to be. Um, I, I think the important thing is you need to find out what on the, on the personal level what it is you like. And once you once you start understanding which grapes you like which varieties then you can start exploring different places in the world that will have that until you just broaden your own personal knowledge but you know so many people i guess have sort of led into this thing that the more expensive means the better and that's that's really not the case you know wine and say it can be intimidating but just if you take the approach you go with what you like i think that's the, the best thing you can do you know from the from a restaurant point of view and i i actually I do consult with quite a few restaurants and help them build wine lists for me if you you know a is, is about the the financial aspect but also what a lot of the issues in a lot of restaurants is actually storage space especially when in asia with the you know the heat differences especially if you sort of you're turning air cons on and off then with and wines under cool you have know, big problems um but i i think what you probably the best thing would be to keep it simple keep it smaller more focused list you know i would go with probably four four reds four whites and one sparkling uh keep it keep it small like that and go with sort of known things you know at the moment there's a bit of a trend with these sort of hipstery natural wines and a lot of them don't keep and personally i'm not such a fan but you know i know that's that is a trend right now but um, i think you just got to go with you know like the aromatic wines you know people are going to want if they like that style of wine they're going to drink a Sauvignon Blanc if someone wants more complex wine you're going to want a Chardonnay you know so then maybe you get one New World and one like a Chablis or something which is more of an easier drinking version You know, and then you could do but that's that's what I would do I would just keep it simpler and you don't need all the older wines as well so you know you can keep younger wines you know are going to be fresher probably you know most more people will enjoy them excellent
0: advice and then if I'm going to be dining in a, a restaurant that has a sommelier what's the best way of interacting with them that that you actually do get what you're going to need and what are some lookouts if 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 you've got a budget or a price point in mind
1: yeah i think you know for, for that i would like i mean, i think the most important thing there is to ask the sommelier ask their opinion you know this is what they that's what their job this is what they do they're very passionate about wine and the fact is when you start asking them to share their thoughts they're going to be like really like happy about that and then as far as you know when you say sort of you know which wine or the budget how do you spend without you know the sommelier doing the wrong thing what i would often do is if you're you know with somebody i would like be looking at the wine list and i say well i'd like something like that in this sort of range and just point discreetly at the sort of the prices and then he will they generally will get the hints as to what you're saying and then they will look for wines in that sort of price bracket something that they would then recommend so then that way you you know you're really taking their knowledge they're of that list, and they're coming up with something to help you as to that your price point. Especially, and that's that's very useful when you've got some of the really bigger wine lists, you know, where it's like, you just, it's intimidating. You look how many wines there can be. And, you know, especially like, you know, French wines, unless you really know the wines, it is difficult because you don't know where's the grape, you don't know where, it, you know, there's so much, if you understand in particular what that vineyard is, it will tells you everything. Whereas, you know, at least in sort of Australia or America, all the details on the bottle.
0: Excellent, you, you talk very very knowledgeably about pricing and saying that whilst pricing can be an indication of quality, it's not always linear that, that the cheapest wines on the wine list are worst and the most expensive are, are the best, but there's obviously scarcity and, and uh, storytelling and a lot of other things that influence the pricing. What What's a fairly good strategy if I'm in a restaurant without a sommelier, but I don't want to appear particularly cheap?
1: Mm, yeah, I mean, there's all that joke, isn't it? I want the second cheapest bottle of wine on the price on the list. But, but no, the I mean, second is a bit obvious, is, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you don't don't want to be, don't go with it, But there's like there's all memes about that, about joking about you know people stitching up. No, I mean, I for me, that comes down to a little. You know, you have to have a, a more of an understanding of what you want, and it shouldn't I say it shouldn't come down to the the price of that. So I think you just look for the type of the style of wine you want um go with that and then look to see if you have you know, what you recognize you often i would say you're going to get better value in new world wines than you would do in some of the old world stuff but yeah you know, just have, have a look at the list and see what see what there is there
0: excellent and then you, you talked a little about the history of margaret river and it's it's uh, fairly recent emergence as a wine destination what what are some of the the wines and the the grape variety that really are considered amongst Australia and the globe's greatest?
1: As in the Margaret River? Well, yeah. Margaret River, it is very much, you know, the, the, like, so Margaret, let's go back one more, Margaret River is regarded as like the closest microclimate in the world to Bordeaux. So, obviously, obviously, you've got the sort of the Bordeaux blend, so your Cabernets, um, your uh, Merlots, um Champ Franc, uh, Malbecs and things. all these the old traditional Bordeaux wines are there to do very very well. You've also got on the white side your Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, which is your sort of two Bordeaux whites. The one that's sort of the wild card, and that you know is is Chardonnay. But some of the best Chardonnays in Australia, I'm, I would say, I would say probably the best Chardonnays in Australia. There are a couple, you know, like Giaconda, and a couple of others that are are fantastic. But generally speaking, I would say Margaret River makes the best Chardonnays in Australia that's you know, in my humble opinion but and that sort of doesn't tie in quite with the whole Bordeaux thing but there's this uh, clone which is the ginjin clone uh, named after a place called Gingin, north of Perth which is where the original clones came from these were um, I believe they would elsewhere they'd be known as the Mendoza clone so they came in from South America landed at a place called Gingin, in Australia and here they sort of changed over like decades and these are what do so well in Margaret River so that's always something really to to look out for is the the gin gin clone um yeah so yeah Margaret River it's just it seems nearly everything it does just turns to gold it's um it's quite incredible just you know it's what i say Cabernet would be the biggest when you actually look at competition there's a a very famous guy in Perth John Jens who's like one of the old sort of wine writers old wine stores uh his wife's famous chef and he does this stuff but he's shown some amazing stats where if you look at wine trophies and wine medals for Cabernet or Australian wines, like Margaret River, which makes such a small percentage, but it's it's something ridiculous, like 80, 90%, I think of like trophies or things have come from Margot River. And when you look at it, it's like, wow, it's, uh, so yeah, you can't really go wrong with those. And the other thing, if you, you know, I, th- I think um, the 2018 year for Margaret River is probably the best year. So if ever, you know, say, what is that like, really great Margaret River wines? Generally speaking, look for 2018, I would say Cabernets or chardonnays, and I say, you won't go wrong.
0: That's great. And how are your relationship with the other winemakers? Is it quite collaborative, or is it a competitive market for Margaret River? Or do you collectively try and sell the destination and the, the various merits of the yeah. different wine houses?
1: No, very much. Everybody there's a you know local industry, everyone gets on. I'd say I'd say everybody you know, there are exceptions to that, but the feudal infighting. But no, generally speaking, people are really good, really helpful, and it is, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, you know, so it's 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 great, everyone works together.
0: Some final quick fire questions you, you're able to talk through your morning rituals and what you spend the first 60 minutes of your day doing normally depending on where in the world you are
1: yeah no it's, it's pretty much the same everywhere it's reading I, I literally first thing i'll do is read the news uh then i read emails and texts and it's basically by the time i'll read like sort of pretty much 10 newspapers from around around the world every day and just try and get an idea of what's going on that's sort of a habit from my old job but um yeah so that's sort that's, that's the same no matter where i am holiday or not it would be the same thing a lot of reading
0: and then if you look at some of your closing door moments in your life and, and your career what would you if you were to say a lot came down to hard work and, and some came down to luck could you describe some of those moments that you think were, were quite fortuitous
1: yeah yeah I'm, I'm, i've always said you're know, i'm firmly believing you create your own luck but I, I think most for me most of these moments would be more more than moment more about people I think I've met and been very lucky that for my career guided and sort of helped along at different points by people I've met, you know, in whether it be guy that took me over to Japan in the first place from London, that was obviously a defining moment. Um, some of my sort of early customers I picked up in Singapore who then ended up to be some of the biggest you know, traders there. Now it's been, yeah, very much, I think it's been people rather than events for me. That, although the exception to that is Pakavi, because the whole, by getting Pakavi led me then to restaurants and everything allowed me to leave foreign exchange and that's been a really sort of major part of my life
0: excellent so the power of relationships and the importance of yeah life lifelong relationships and, and your people's absolutely
1: experience. excellent do you have yeah a quote, no, absolutely quote,
0: do you have a quote or mantra that you try and live your life by um,
1: yeah i guess i guess the question is with the old foreign exchange market motto dictum may impact my word is my bond there you go
0: that's a bit of latin
1: yes and a bit of latin a bit like (laughs) pakavi
0: excellent then the very last question uh jeremy if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere but not for pakavi where would you place it and what would it say oh not for
1: pakavi well that's a a tricky one
0: you can Um, ask me where you put it if it was a if you two questions then you've got a pakavi billboard where would you like to put it And then you've got a non-Pocavi billboard. Where do you want to put it and what do you want to say?
1: I think the Bocavi billboard, I don't know. Whether it would be in whichever major city or maybe somewhere in New York. I'm still trying to get into America. Just talking about best Cabernet in the world, best red wine in Australia. I think that would have to be the the Bocavi one. I think, oh, gosh, personal one. Live every day like it's your last. No regrets. There you go.
0: Very good. And where are you going to put that?
1: Oh. That's somewhere home. <laughs>
0: well, let's not put it in Margaret River because it's obviously not built up.
1: <laughs> not, not, not no. Too much advertising
0: or, or billboards. No, no. But put it outside your home in Singapore. Yeah, put it outside the home in Singapore. Yeah, brilliant. But, mate, that's that's fantastic. Thanks ever so much for for. No, thank you. Miles. Thanks
1: for the opportunity of being
0: here thank you for listening to untold with jeremy muller for more information on the travis Macero restaurant group you can visit tmrg.com.sg chef travis who we talked about is a wonderful chef i miss his cooking tremendously now being based in london thanks also to jake sanders for the intro and outro music and most of all huge thanks to jeremy for talking us through his uh, incredibly exciting life career and travels stay tuned for more episodes balance of year 2023 thanks again for listening